This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello and welcome to the morning break with Graham Stanley. Today I'll be talking about change in education and schools. I do have a recording of my family, but I don't have any guests today, so if you'd like to call in and join me, I'd love to hear from you. Today's show is also dedicated to a wonderful teacher from Mexico, Omo Rogerio, who recently passed away. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out, with Teachers Talk Radio. So welcome to the morning break, everyone. I have decided to dedicate today's show to change, change in education, as in how changes are planned and how they're affected and change as in how things have changed in schools over the years. I don't have any scheduled guests. So as I said earlier, if you're listening in and would like to join me, then please do so. If you are listening in live and would like to join the call, please download the Podbean app onto your mobile, visit ttradio.org and click on the listen live um, button on the homepage. This should take you directly into the show. There you can post comments and ask questions during uh, the show and you can ask to be added to the live call. So, this show is also, as I said in the introduction, dedicated to the memory of Omar Rogerio, a teacher, teacher educator and researcher from Mexico State with just seven years of experience, who had the pleasure to meet a few years ago when he took part in the British Council of Mexico's Champion Teachers Exploratory Action Research Project. I'd like to talk a little bit about the work he did and the benefits of action research, uh, especially as a way of affecting change in order to remember him a little. Um, Omar studied to be an English teacher at the Escuela Normal de Amecameca and then took his master's at the Universidad Tecnológica de México and majored in digital teaching in the Universidad Popular Autónoma in Puebla, which is a city near uh, Mexico City. He worked as an English language teacher and as a teacher educator and researcher at the Escuela Normal de Amecama, and uh, Escuela Normal is the name for teacher training college in Mexico. Now, I met Omar when he took part in something called the Champion Teachers Project that the British Council ran in Mexico and other countries in the Americas. This was a project that introduced English teachers to the concept of exploratory action research and encouraged them to undertake the action research in their own classrooms. And I'll talk more about exploratory action research later in the show, because I think it's something that um, if you don't know much about it, I think it uh, opens up lots of possibilities uh, that you can uh, put into effect into your own uh, classrooms. But just want to say now that Omar really took to this. He was a rising star in the project. He was featured in the resultant publication the Champion Teachers Mexico, Stories of Exploratory Action Research in Escuelas Normales. 
and he was on he was enthused he presented on exploratory action research at a number of conferences uh, sharing what he learned with other teachers and trainee teachers and this also led him to speak on other subjects at other events and his presentation for example on teacher and student well-being in remote teaching um, which i was uh, able to see at the 30th anniversary special edition of uh, the Bebelt conference in 2021. The Bebelt conference is the bright and best of English language teaching and it's held in Mexico. Uh, it was held in Mexico and now it's held online. It was very well received and he was invited to present late last year at, uh, I think it's called Coptisol, I think. Um, in, in, in the National Korean English Language Conference. Now, apart from being an enthusiastic and dedicated teacher, Omar was always supportive of his colleagues, a really nice, friendly guy. And I was shocked to hear of his passing recently um, in, a, in a drowning accident uh, at such a young age when he had so much premise, so much ahead of him. So this show is dedicated to Omar. And I will be right back after the Teacher Talk Radio News. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. SteveWoods.co.uk for educational support in IT and computer science. Coming up, I'm delivering a number of courses. Learn to program in Python is a free one-hour course designed to start you on your way into Python coding. Everything works in a browser, so there's nothing to install beforehand. Join me remotely to learn the basics on Wednesday the 8th of June, 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock. Visit SteveWoods.co.uk to start your journey. Are you a state school teacher in England? Why not be a hero this half-term and join me for two days and receive up to 1360 £60 in bursary. Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at stevewoods.co.uk. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit 
www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. According to a report in The Independent, schools have begun giving free breakfast to all students sitting exams in an effort to support the rising numbers of families struggling with the cost of living crisis. Head teachers have said that to ensure that no one falls through the cracks, they have decided for the first time to offer free breakfast to pupils taking exams. Pep Delazio, head teacher of a secondary school in Sheffield, said, We have gone over and above this year. We call it a warm-up and it is just literally preparing for the exam so we know they're good to go before the papers are out and before they go into the exam hall. A government spokesperson said, A nutritious breakfast at the start of the day can help a pupil's attainment and behaviour. Our national school breakfast programme, backed by up to £24 million for two years, is helping children in disadvantaged areas start the day with a healthy meal. We encourage all schools to use their increased core schools and recovery funding to help children and young people according to their needs, including with breakfast clubs. In Scotland, the EIS union, which represents around 80% of Scotland's teaching professionals, is hosting its AGM this week, with the recently launched Pay Attention campaign, which calls for a 10% pay rise for teachers amid the cost of living crisis taking centre stage. A rally is expected to take place on Saturday afternoon as part of the pay increase campaign. EIS General Secretary Larry Flanagan said, now in its 175th year, the EIS is the largest teaching union in Scotland, the oldest national organisation of this type in the world. The EIS AGM is one of the key events in the calendar of Scottish education and always sparks considerable debate on the issues facing our education system. This year's event is the first physical AGM that the EIS has held for three years as a consequence of the COVID pandemic. Following two years of online meetings, our members will be looking forward to reacquainting themselves with colleagues in person and engaging in lively debate on the key issues facing Scottish education. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello! We all buy a lot of stuff online. 
It's easier, more convenient, but finding the best price can be difficult. This week, let's talk about comparing prices and are reduced prices really a bargain? Without boring you with the law on price dropping, basically, shops have to have had a product on sale at a higher price for a substantial time in the past six months to allow them to claim a price drop. If you research this, you'll see a lot of hits on the 28-day rule. 28 consecutive days being considered a substantial amount of time. If you're shopping on site like Amazon, for instance, there's a website that'll show you the past sale prices of a product. It's called Camel Camel Camel. That's three camels with no spaces. You can even set up a free account to send you a notification when a price drops. If you're shopping elsewhere, there's lots of price comparison sites around to help you find the best price. A simple search for price comparison will give you a huge list. My advice is find one you understand and trust and start saving. Do you have a favourite price comparison website? Why not get in touch at the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed? Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. I have no guest planned today, so please join me live and call in if you can. I can see a couple of people already uh, listening in live. Um, if you are doing so and would like to jump and join me, then please just let me know and I'll bring you in. We can have a chat about change. So that is the central topic of today's show. And this was prompted by me being in London the week before last for the Educational World Forum. The Educational World Forum, this is the first time that I've had the opportunity to experience it, although I'd heard about it before. It's an annual gathering of education ministers from around the world. I think it's the largest gathering globally of education ministers, uh, I believe. And it's usually held in London in January, though this time it was held uh, in May and was the first Education World Forum or EWF since before the pandemic. Now, the event is supported by the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, the Department of Education, Department of International Development, the Department for International Trade and the British Council, which was the reason why I was there. The Education World Forum brings together ministers of education, their advisors and delegations from across the world with the idea of sharing knowledge about education systems and the challenges everyone faces. And the key issues, well, key issues are shared um, and addressed, learning is shared, and it's been running in one shape or form uh, since around 2002, although I think pre-2010 it was called something else. Now, for two and a half days, these ministers and their delegates, they gather together, they hear a number of plenary sessions from other ministers and invited experts. They attend ministerial exchanges and most, if not all, the delegations stay on all week uh, in order to meet other ministers in private, visit schools and other organisations such as Ofsted in the UK and to attend side briefings and events. Uh, the theme, of course, of this year's EWF, I bet you can guess it, it was education, building forward together, stronger, bolder and better. And as you can imagine from the title, countries were mainly interested in discussing initiatives and challenges surrounding education systems post-pandemic, with things like learning loss being high on the agenda. Here's what was written about the event on the official website, ewf.org. 
our countries, our communities and our cultures, positive responses to new and long-term challenges inform our EWF 2022 theme. In our formal sessions and informal discussions, we will draw upon what we have learned and how it can be shared. We will examine how we each are finding or have found ways to build resilience and well-being for our people and sustainability for our planet. We'll learn how education might help us embrace peace, partnership and prosperity and lead to successful economies. So now the EWF programme is quite dynamic and it develops parallel to the discussions and initial questions that were posed to the ministers before they came were as follows. I'll just read them out. What should we learn from our responses to recent challenges? How should we improve equity and assign resources more effectively? How can we build stronger, bolder, better education? How can we build greater trust and agency and therefore improve education? What steps should we take to create digital equity, resilient infrastructure and practical support? How should we design smooth learning pathways all the way from nursery and all the way through education? How can we successfully build the citizens and society we hope for? How should we accelerate collaborative innovation? And the last question, how can we intentionally align policy? learning priorities and ed tech development. So that gives you an idea of the kind of topics that uh, were are thought globally to be the real things that need to be discussed at the moment. So that's quite interesting, I think, from that list. I think the, the obvious ones are, the first one, of course, was about the recent challenges, which doesn't mention the pandemic um by name but it definitely hints at it and then the idea of of having more equitable education is still one of those things that concern education systems and ministries around the world the idea of being able to provide education for all um is still a, a massive challenge for lots of countries and assigning resources more effectively and more equitably Stronger, bolder, better education, of course. I think that um, is just something that will provide better results, I guess. Um, and then greater trust and agency and improve education. So greater trust um, from, I'm supposing, from, uh, from teachers, from learners about what they're teaching, about the system between each other, um, in the system as well, etc. And then, of course, we have digital equity and ed tech, which is something that is more and more is entering into uh, our classrooms, and which is something that we can't really um, ignore. And infrastructure and practical support. The idea of infrastructure, of course was highlighted or rather the importance of infrastructure was was highlighted so much during the pandemic because of the lack of internet connections and lack of devices in so many countries and so many places that really threw into um obvious it was obvious that so many students and teachers were lacking this to be able to 
manage to continue learning uh, when the schools were closed. So that was a very interesting list, I think, to uh, to explore. Now, I was in London in a support capacity, um, so I didn't go to most of the um, the actual sessions, but I must say I was impressed by all of the activity and this opportunity to learn from other countries and to share ideas, I think, is, is so important in today's globalised world. I think it seemed, to me at least, it it like it was a real moment where the seeds of educational change may happen at a policy level this coming together and learning from each other and that made me think about the role change can and has to play in education in general and hence the topic for today so making changes at a policy level at either state or national level is of course a very difficult task to do i think anyone who's ever worked in a school or in education in general can understand that. I think the ramifications of making changes that that affects so many learners and teachers, um, it's so important to get it right. I think not only does change at this level take a very long time to filter down from the education ministry to school and teacher and learners, but any changes that are implemented, no matter how small, may have the power to affect people's future lives dramatically. It's therefore so important that changes made to school systems or changes made to education in general are carefully considered, I think, before they're implemented and that they're also based on evidence and research. So that is all I think I'm going to say about the EWF and the change at a national system level. But of course, I think it's quite interesting to think that change is something that, of course, teachers and individual schools have the ability to implement as well. And I don't want to hint, I don't want to say really that that isn't important. If anything, it can be more important or as important as the larger scale changes. So, as I mentioned in the introduction, Omar Rogerio, who sadly drowned recently in in an accident, he was an aspiring teacher, teacher educator and researcher who he got to know when he became involved in an exploratory action research project that was run in the Americas, which was called Champion Teachers. And I'd like to talk a little bit about this idea of using action research to implement change, evidence-based change in your classroom. It's one of the ideas behind action research, and which I'm sure you've all heard about, is to help teachers demystify the idea of research, I think, which is always a good thing. I think there is a lot of research that seems, in my mind, quite divorced from the actual classroom. And a lot of things that happen in classrooms that are uh, perhaps undertaken without a lot of particular evidence or research. Um, And I think one of the best things is when uh, teachers, if they're implementing change, for example, in the classroom, if they can do it based on evidence and data, uh, perhaps that is something that is worth exploring, I think. And I think one of the things that's interesting about action research is that it shows how research can actually be directly linked to what happens in the classroom. In other words, it's very practically focused, and it can be something any teacher can do if they spend some time on it. And it can have a very positive effect on learning and teaching. 
this goes against the accepted idea, uh, the this idea that is accepted by by many that research isn't particularly focused on classroom practice, and that is only something that perhaps university researchers or very experienced teachers can do, and also that it's a strict process that requires a lot of time. Of course, that kind of research does exist and it's important, but action research is something that any teacher can do uh, once they put their mind to it. And I hope I can convince you of this uh, today. So exploratory action research is similar to the regular action research, but there are some notable differences. In the 2018 publication by Paula Raballedo from Chile and Richard Smith from the UK, Exploratory Action Research, um, this was a handbook, was described as a way to explore, understand and improve our practice as teachers. It's a very simple description, but a one that I think very uh, states its purpose in, in as few words as necessary, I think, very effectively. So if I go back to the Champion Teachers Programme uh, in 2013 when exploratory action research was implemented there in Chile as a way of professional development for, for English teachers working in state schools. Well, the idea was to support teachers with designing and implementing small-scale research projects that uh, were carried out in their own classrooms with their own learners to help them understand the learning, the teaching, and to explore their own teaching and their learners through collecting evidence. And this exploration process would result in action points that the teachers could then put into practice to make improvements in, in the classroom and hopefully see whatever issue that they had identified become better or become resolved. So exploratory action research then was used to help teachers make informed decisions about their teaching and decisions that would influence the learning of their students. The program expanded from Chile to Peru to Colombia to Uruguay and then Mexico and ran until 2021. I know that it created a community of teachers in the Americas in different countries that is still quite strong and a lot of the teachers are still conducting uh, action research which is is a really positive thing. And there are publications available to help you if you as a teacher or your school would like to put into practice your own uh, exploratory action research scheme and I'll put a link to those in the show notes. I think the place to start is a handbook but each of the countries I mentioned uh, or most of them has publications of selected projects run by the teachers which can be very inspiring I think to read and gives you an idea of the kind of things the kind of things that you can do. Now the first stage for any teacher wanting to put this into practice is one of reflection. Teachers should reflect on their own classroom and identify something, a challenge, a puzzle or a problem, even a success. It's unlikely for teachers. Teachers don't normally choose that, but it is possible and can be a really good thing to do to explore further. And usually teachers would choose something that they wanted to change that was happening in their own classroom. Then teachers are encouraged to work with a mentor over time. Uh, usually the suggested period is for this methodology, the exploratory action research methodology is usually five months. And during the project, they work through various stages, which are as follows. So the first stage is planning to explore. So in other words, 
starting to think about it um, and how to go about it, setting it up so you're ready to put the exploratory action research project into practice. And you can take a few weeks to do that. Uh, you can design tools. You can start thinking about which of the classrooms that you would like to focus upon, etc. And then next would be exploring. So you can explore the issues, start thinking about your own practice, reflecting on it, start um, looking at it. You can actually get someone to observe your classes to actually uh, suggest something as well, if that uh, is appropriate. And once you've done that, you can choose what you would like to focus upon and then start collecting the data. And then once the data is collected, the next stage is analyzing and reflecting. So analyzing the data and trying to objectively understand what it means. And this is usually uh, where some of the surprises come in. Because I think as teachers, we are so involved, deeply involved in the actual teaching, in all of the little micro skills that are required to be able to to actually teach effectively. So, you know, the management of the materials, the classroom management, the trying to be engaging for our learners to be able to come across as someone they would like to listen to and learn from, et cetera, et cetera. Don't have to tell you about all that. You, you, you do it every day. And I think one of the things that's very difficult to do, if not impossible, is actually to kind of see a bigger picture, which is why this focus on researching uh, uh, and collecting data to be able to objectively look afterwards or during, if you can, um, while well, the actual teaching process is so important. Uh, the next stage of this process is planning to change. So once you've analyzed the data and you've, in, you've seen something in that data that indicates where an issue is or what you would like to focus on, whatever, then you can design an action plan. You design the action plan, and the action plan could be a number of items that you think may produce change. So may improve the situation, for example, or may identify something you want to identify. It's um, it's difficult to talk specifically because it it's, it's designed to be as open as you want it to be and to be able to be um, put forward to your own classroom, whatever it is that you want to look at. And then implementing that action plan is very important and you should implement it and then try to observe and evaluate the actions and to continue with those that are successful or to drop those that perhaps don't have any positive effect. And then the next stage, of course, is reflecting. So reflecting on the whole process and coming to conclusions. Have you been able to identify what it was you first thought of? Were there any surprises? What kind of um, actions worked better than others, etc.? And so it goes. That's the end of the cycle. But you could consider uh, continuing with another thing or revising it and running another cycle on the same um, item that you've uh, identified. It's up to you, really. I think. One of the most important stages, as I mentioned before, is the data collection phase for me. I think the data can be collected, uh, as we all know, in, in many different ways. You can design a questionnaire to collect data from learners, for example, or carry out interviews. You could make it a project in your classroom. The data can be obtained from reflective writing. Uh, you could keep a journal. 
just to reflect upon how you feel in the moment. If you're doing that, I think one of the things that works really well for me is to write immediately after the class or as soon after the class as you can, because the distance between when the class finishes and the actual reflection process, you can cause a lot of, um, there can be a lot of difference if you write at a distance, if you like. Um, from that. So write as soon after you've finished teaching that class as you can. That might lend itself to choosing the class you want to focus upon that will allow you to do that if you have a bit of a break before lunch, etc. or some at the end of the day, etc. to you. The focus could be, of course, on what is in the lesson plans or the materials or anything really, or the use of technology, for example, if that's something you would like to 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 look at how you use technology for what reasons and in what ways and how effective it is. A lot of course depends on what is that you, the teacher, want to explore about your teaching practice. What benefits can teachers obtain from carrying out exploratory action research in their classroom? Well, among other things, the teachers that took part in the Champion Teachers Programme reported an increase in reflective attitudes. Uh, stronger student-teacher relationships, and an increased sense of teaching efficacy. So they felt that they were teaching better at the end of the process and that their students were had uh, benefited from it as well, which can only be a good thing. Now, Omar Rogerio was in the first cohort of the Mexico Champion Teachers Programme. And what I'd like to do um, is to speak a little bit more about his particular project to illustrate, to give you an example of a of an actual action research project that was put into practice. And it gives you um, a particular project to illustrate what exploratory action research can be and how teachers can do it. So Omar, in particular, was frustrated at getting his secondary students to speak in English. He was an English teacher. And despite his efforts, they kept reverting to Spanish. He carried out his research in his classroom to understand what was at the heart of this issue and successfully implemented a number of changes to foster positive feelings about them speaking English. Students in question were aged 14 to 15, and they were beginner-level students so they were A1 level on the uh, CFR, the Common European Framework for Reference for Languages. This group had three 50-minute lessons a week, so a reasonable amount of time to learn English. And no matter how much Omar designed what he thought were engaging activities for them to encourage them to speak, they always ended up speaking in Spanish which was a very frustrating thing for him and it affected his well-being, if you like, in the classroom and his feeling uh, um, of, of, of teaching. So after embarking on exploratory action research, starting the, starting the process, Omar came up with, at the beginning, with four questions he decided he needed to find answers to. They were, number one, how do students feel about speaking in English during the lesson? Number two, how do students prefer to interact during speaking activities? Number three, what kind of support do I, the teacher, provide when working with speaking activities? 
And number four, what kind of language do students use in the classroom? So in other words, when do they use the target language, in this case, English? What kind of, you know, when is it appropriate to use L1, the Spanish, the Spanish in this case, uh, classroom language, etc. So Alma designed a student questionnaire to better understand how they felt during the speaking activities and to understand the support they believed they needed. In addition, he called upon three colleagues and asked them each to observe three of his lessons independently. The observers were asked to take note of the interactive uh, patterns while as looking into the same areas as the student questionnaire. And finally, he kept a journal to reflect on his own understanding of what was happening. He then analysed the data and he found the answers to the four questions, which included nine students had negative feelings about speaking English because they were afraid of mispronouncing words or they were nervous about making mistakes or not being understood. 16 of the students, I think it was a class of 20, preferred whole group and team activities. This was surprising because Orma really believed they preferred pair work. And this is the thing that happens during exploratory action research is you find things that you, they challenge your accepted beliefs, if you like, um, when you do the data collection. And he found from the responses that he was already providing a lot of support. So that wasn't particularly problematic. As a result, he put into practice a number of actions and implemented these over the course of 10 lessons. This included pre-teaching a number of fixed expressions for the students to use, working on pronunciation, using games and choral repetition to help students learn uh, useful phrases and make it easier for them to sound natural and less concerned about making mistakes. He also got the students working in small groups, making presentations about familiar topics and acting out in role plays. At the end of this, he collected evidence of impact using another questionnaire and asking colleagues to observe his teaching as well. And finally, he interviewed six of the students to find out if their attitudes had changed. So I think it's an example of a really robust um, exploratory action research procedure that Omar put into place. And the positive feedback he received from the students uh, was very encouraging. He was happy to learn that all of the learners found the pre-teaching of the phrases with the pronunciation very useful, and it seemed to encourage their confidence as well. Um, 17 of the students told Omo that they experienced very positive feelings during the activities and the majority felt that role plays were the most beneficial speaking activity. So that was something he was able to build upon as well after that. And most of them also thought that working in small groups was the best way to interact in English. And he'd never used role plays before. And Omo admits that some of his assumptions, assumptions about what he deemed appropriate activities to use in the classroom were wrong. So that was an interesting experience and it's really good to read about Omar's and other teachers' experiences of of doing this research in the classroom because I think it, it really, for me at least, it, it throws into, um, becomes very obvious that this is something that can be very, very beneficial um, and can challenge your assumptions about how you teach and what you teach. So that's a brief introduction to exploratory action research, and I'll put a link in the show notes, as I said before, to uh, some of the things that I mentioned, publications, etc. if you want to know more. If you do explore action research further in your own classroom, please let me know. The best way you can do that is via Twitter, and you can contact me on at ELT Graham.
Now, the last thing around the topic of change I want to speak about today is how schools and teaching, teachers and education have changed over time. And I thought the best way for me to do this was to ask my family for their memories of school, teaching and education. I took advantage of spending some time with them recently and asked my parents, Austin and Isabella Stanley, and then my brother, Craig Stanley, to reflect on their experience. My first experience of school was being introduced to a school in Plesley. I was taken along by my father and my mother, who I can't remember walking. But when we got there, all what I year was this? about what, the school. What year was it, by the way? This would be 1939. Uh, 38, 39. And my only re remembering impression of it is they, they had a case in the entrance to the school which was full of plasticine figures made by the pupils, which I was fascinated with. My next experience was after the start of the war, 1939-45, when we weren't allowed to attend school until they got the air raid shelters built. And so you had to take, uh, collect work from school and do it at home. Uh, during this period, uh, the teachers were of a very variable quality because most of them were retreads. In other words, people had been retired and didn't particularly want to come back, but because there was no younger teachers available, they'd all got to fight or do other things, they, uh, they had to do it. Uh, I think my worst experience, although it didn't bother us greatly at the time, was one teacher who was standing at the desk doing something with her and she she sniffed and said you smell stand over there <laughs> having said that i can quite understand because we used to play cards with the tops of milk bottles which was full cream milk and they had a an advertisement on the top of the bottle and it used to lift the bottle the bottle top out and lick the cream off the back of the thing and then put it in your pocket and you played thrownies against the wall who could get nearest the wall or you would split them into your two packs in both hands and then say picture or plane because the advert was on the outside and if you got got it right then you were uh you won whatever with the other person's hand the hands if it picked right the best experience I had at school was a remarkable teacher, a metalwork teacher, who was excellent with children. He'd been in industry. I knew how you know his he knew his business inside out. He also ran the football team, and I was daft about football at that time. Didn't Too play long. for the school team. I was a bit small, a bit young, but I used to support them avidly, and they were playing away from home in another part of the county on a cup match and I went to see them and we got beat. But surprise, surprise, when I went in to school on the Monday, I was told, Mr. Johnson wants to see you. So with great fear and trepidation, I went to see this Mr. Johnson, who was very short of manner, but very nice bloke. And he says, Stanley, yes, sir. He said, I noticed you were at the match on Saturday. Yes, yes, we got beat. Sad, sad. 
And he says, well, you were the only supporter from a school to see the school team. And because of that, I've decided that you should be our first reserve. So I'm making you first reserve. And as you were first reserve, your jury expenses. And as it was threepence each way on the bus, sixpence. There you are. First reserve, Stanley. Well done. Off you go. And I thought, in retrospect, what a wonderful person to understand how much that meant to a child. I was on cloud nine when I went out of his class uh, thinking, I was first reserve on the school football team before I'd ever played for them or even had a trial. And on top of that, I got sixpence to spend. Sixpence was an enormous amount of money. You could get penny dips. You could get three pennies of bruised fruit and all sorts. Excellent. And that was mine. We fortunately, in 1945, all the young teachers started coming back. And... These were good teachers, enthusiastic. They knew all about football. They knew what offside was. They were really excellent and uh, fantastic. They started to teach things like French, fencing, etc. Really, really good. And my last two years at school were excellent because of that. What about your first day at school? Do you remember a day when Ooh, you... I can't remember the first day. When to no, school, your first remember. day at school. No, I can't remember first no. day at school. Mm -hmm. no, no. A favourite teacher? Favourite teacher. Who's your favourite teacher? Uh, well, as well as this Mr Johnson, who I told you about giving me the sixpence, the other teacher was a Mr Thomas, who was a woodwork teacher. And I preferred woodwork to metalwork. Uh, and I was quite good at it, if I even say it myself. And at one stage we did a series of exercises making tenon joints and dovetails, etc. And the only wood that was available because it was during the war was the, the war just ended. So we used to go in the shelters and they had lat to make seats in the shelters. And we took these lats over with two by ones and we used those for test pieces for woodwork. And because I was quite good at it, and I was ahead of the class, Mr Thomas said, if you like Stanley, you can make anything you like in woodwork. He says, you only have got to say, you must bring your own wood in. Because we ain't got a choice of wood, you can see what we're using for the test pieces. So I went home, and that following week, uh, I searched for a piece of wood. I told him I'd like to make a cricket bat. He said, yeah, that's all right. So I searched for a piece of wood, and not far from where I lived, there was an open tip where they tipped things. And being close to a shipyard, there was all sorts of wires and woods, and I got this lovely big piece of wood, big enough to make a full-size cricket bat. And it was, the only difference was it was rather dark in colour. So I took it in and said, I've got that wood, sir. He said, oh, let's have a look. He said, oh, he says, that is lignum vitae, which is the heaviest known wood. <laughs> it's, it's rather tough. But if you want to make a cricket bat from it, you can. And I did. It was more than difficult to pick this bat up, I must admit. It was very, very heavy and a wonderful dark colour. It was used to line the stern tubes of uh, marine vessels where the uh, propeller shaft came out through the thing. It, 
it provides like a gland to stop the uh, the water getting into the ship. And that was my experience, one of my nicest experiences at school. A lovely man, Mr Thomas, as was Mr Johnson. What about your experience as a teacher? As a teacher? Oh, what do you remember about that? The first time or a memorable day teaching? I think the first thing I remember about that uh, is I was asked if I would teach at a local technical school. Somebody to give my name. Uh, I, I was a bit of a specialist in the art of fine measurement. And somebody passed my name on. And out of the blue, the chap who organised the school's lessons rang and said, would you like to do some teaching? And I said, well, what in? And he said, fine measurement metrology. I said, yeah, yeah, I'll do, I'll do that, do that. I said, okay, and he explained what it was. And then I said, when do I start? And he said, tomorrow. So I had to go home at five o'clock, got home about six, and write up a first lesson. I went in about an hour early into the class. It was all chalk and talk then, and I'd made copious notes, filled about three blackboards full of writing, so I could say, that's what you learned, <laughs> get on with it. And uh, I remember when the, when the uh, class started filing, it was really about somewhere between 15 and 20 in the class. It was a night school, I should say. Uh, and uh, it was from quarter to seven till nine o'clock each night, two nights a week. And uh, I remember looking up as I was about to start the rest, I thought, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. But fortunately, I turned the board, started talking. And from then, it was first class, I enjoyed it, I enjoyed every bit. I later went on to take a teacher training course, which was I really enjoyed very much. The only thing I did find, I used to find when I'd finished teaching, got it took me time. about two hours to wind down after the teaching. I was Great. sort of so stressed. Uh, so I just didn't want to talk or do anything except listen to the radio or watch television. One more. What about your experience of education or teaching with your sons? Are there any anecdotes or things that you can remember about being a parent and teach teachers or teaching or schools? Just just being an engineer, the one that comes to mind, my eldest son, Graham, he decided he was going to take history. And I remember going along to an open night and speaking to his history teacher. And as I say, being an engineer, I said, what the point of history in the nature of things? <laughs> and I got a very severe talking to from this gentleman who taught history. I must admit, I've changed my opinion of history, and particularly I find a great deal of interest in the local history. But at that time, I thought, it's not making things. It's, what does history do? <laughs> but I've learned my lesson. And I understand a bit more about history. So, what can you remember about school? Well, I can remember starting at Queen Victoria School in North Shields and being very excited. And I loved the school, but then we had a trauma and I was, what, five years old, yeah, and my house was bombed and we had... So this was one when... Back in 1939? Yeah, just when I started school. I can't tell you exact date, but it was when I started school. 
and I was really upset because we went to live with my auntie and then were given a flat near the coast, which was nice. But I had to leave my school and I was very, very upset because I loved it. And I hadn't been there long, so that's my experience. You were evacuated, is that right? Oh, that's a long time ago. Well, for a week, yes. Before. <laughs> what do you remember about that? Loved it. Went oven gym. And, and my father came after a week and he said, I don't like this. We'll all, if we're going to go, we'll all go together. And he took us home. And you wanted to stay? <laughs> yes. You've got a nice doll. Got a lovely away, doll when I went away, yes. Because it was my birthday when I went away. <laughs> so what do you remember about your teachers? Do you, is there any particular mm. teacher that you remember as being very nice? Or very very horrible. Oh, very horrible. Yes, very horrible. Tell about that. What was the horrible teacher? When I was at junior school, she was wicked. <laughs> There's a little girl in class and she had alopecia and she used to wear a knitted hat and everybody was tolerant of it. But one day this woman come in and she made her take her hat off and she said no. And she had her crying and tears and she took her hat off and everybody seen her bald head. But luckily nobody laughed at her. But I still can't believe she'd done that. That in a horrible Friday morning mental tests. I used to lie in bed on Thursday, terrified. She used to go right round the class, ask a new question about mental arithmetic. And if you didn't get it right, she brought you out and caned you. But luckily, I always got mine right. <laughs> Very good. That's all I can remember. What about the last day of school? Do you remember the last day that you spent at school or when you had to leave school? No, nothing traumatic. I can't really remember that. Too far back. <laughs> okay. And what about... I can remember when you had an air raid and it was through the night. You didn't go into school till midday. And it was great that we thought it was exciting. Because your parents wouldn't... Parents wouldn't be uh, excited about it. And I remember taking my gas mask to school. You had to take your gas mask or you're in trouble. And that's about it. Do you remember your first day at school? I don't. Our first day at school? I can think about uh, my first memories have been maybe nursery school, going to Knotsflats Nursery School and riding these tractors or these kind of ride on things down the bank. That's what my first memory is. In terms of first memories of school, I remember a very, I went to quite a small school called Spring Gardens, which is like a first school in the was it first, second and primary? I don't know what they called that then. Primary school. Primary, secondary and then high, I guess. And thinking it's quite a small school, quite a nurturing environment. But then thinking about the shock to the system when you move at 11 and how different the high school environment was and how that felt quite brutal compared with, with the um, more nurturing small school, I think. That's also what I think about having had kids go through school systems thinking about how well the middle school system works in this country and how they seem to move at the right times and how that seems to give you that that initial start in life. That's really good, that small school, like, nurturing feel and then moving you up when you're ready to go, really. So, What about teachers? Do you have a particular... Have there been any teachers that have particularly affected you, either positively or negatively? 
I'd say mainly positive, I think. I can't think of many teachers affect me negatively. I think I've been lucky to have had some very good teachers, I think. Uh, I think I had a very good math teacher at Spring Gardens. Had some really nice experiences in Spring Gardens. Really good set of teachers there and an excellent set of teachers at the high school. And I think a couple of people, probably teachers you probably remember as well, or people are very encouraged, like Mr. Mockett was a chemistry teacher, he was very good. Mr. Cunningham, really, Eng- really excellent English teacher, very supportive. He was friends with the lead singer from Prefab Sprouts. I remember him coming in, time was on, and just but I remember him being quite a creative soul and being quite impressed by that, really, and quite inspired by that, really. Um, but also things like the art teacher who was into music, so. He was kind of playing things like the Velvet Underground, different things in inside the class. I remember just being exposed to different influences, really. But also having a couple of probably quite poor teachers there as well. I remember quite a vindictive French teacher who was horrible. Um, a Spanish teacher couldn't control the class, who was bullied by the, te- by the children. But yeah, all in all, a very positive thing. And lots of very positive thoughts about sport and being very encouraged to go down the sport and route, really. What about being a parent? Sure, yeah. I think the North East were very lucky with the quality of the schools we've got. And I think the quality of teaching generally is massively improved. I think we've had some really outstanding teachers. I think Henry and Josh had some really outstanding teachers. And that continues with James, who's only five now. In terms of Hannah and Josh's teachers, particularly at first school, that first school experience was unbelievably good. And just, yeah, just in terms of the teaching, but also the the setting out of values and um, the moral side, I think, as well. It's very good. So it's not a religious background, but definitely a focus on morality and around a rounded set of education, really. So, yeah, I've been incredibly impressed by quality teaching. And I think that's been massively improved, I think, from my day. And, um, but yeah... I think from both Hannah and Josh, they've had individual teachers who've really helped them at key times and really motivate them and really inspired them, I think. And, yeah, I think some very, very positive experiences, really. Can you think of any anecdotes related to that or related to you? Yeah, so, yeah, even just little ones, really. I remember from Hannah's perspective being quite shocked when her teacher, who was very good, a guy called Mr Massey, who's very funny and very inspiring I think his teacher but he came up to us in the yard and just said I don't think Hannah can tell the time and she was quite it was quite far on this was like quite far on and, then, and we just utterly being quite shocked when we suddenly realized that also the second child you think that there's an assumption that they have learned everything and just been quite shocked that we that she hadn't managed, <laughs> hadn't managed to tell the time really remember Hannah coming back with some uh, quite inspired writing, being quite impressed with their writing, some very creative writing, quite imaginative, rethinking in early age how she had to get for that. But also with Josh, how, yeah, I think his experiences at school and uh, just those early school experiences, like, this is quite cliched about he was in the school play and like nativity and stuff and having those memories and how, how many of those things we've got on video and photos that can look back really. But yeah, I think very precious memories I think. So to go back to Hannah and the telling the time, how did you react? What did you do after that? Well I was quite shocked but yeah it's one way we had to buy 
a special clock and just cheer over that week to catch up. But just feeling mortified as a parent that would miss that and being, being like not understanding how that could have happened. <laughs> Something so fundamental of not being able to tell the time at that age. Like, how did she cope with getting to school and stuff? It was incredible. <laughs> So what about the future of education? What do you think the future of education is going to be like? What I, I feel really quite inspired looking at James and what his experience is. I'm really impressed with his school. He's five years old. He goes to school in Gosforth in Newcastle. I think what I like is the, it's a very, very diverse, uh, interesting environment. His friends come from all over the world and there's a richness to that that perhaps we didn't have growing up in No Shields where it's quite less diverse really but I think that that whole thing about fantastic vocabulary yeah yeah definitely but I think half that comes from the people that he's yeah. involved with who are like kids are incredibly bright they seem very like very bright at that age and they seem to be very well taught but also quite yeah quite rounded in terms of things that they're taught as well so yeah I feel very inspired by things actually I see a lot of things now in terms of young people coming to our organisation who are straight out of school, straight out of university, and just been very impressed by their standards and their knowledge, I guess. feels like education breeds, breeds people very differently now. There's a lot more confidence, a lot more focus on communication skills as well. So one of the interesting things for me about what my mother and father and brother said about their experiences of school, teachers and education, is how much things have changed for the better, which can only be encouraging, can't it? Which is, uh, it's great. So that brings us to the end of today's show. Nathan Ginn is next on Teachers Talk Radio with the Twilight Show at 6 p.m. British summertime. And remember, there are shows all week. I'll be back next week with a guest at the same time on Tuesday. Until then, goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.